5: Welcome to another fascinating collaboration podcast I've arranged. I'm Shane Waters, the host of Foul Play Crime Series, and today we're about to embark on a wondrous journey, an Easter adventure unlike any other. During our time together, 12 podcaster friends of mine will be joining us to share true stories of fake deaths. All podcasts are listed in the show notes, along with a link on where to find them. As we prepare for the excitement that lies ahead, let's take a moment to reflect on the origins of this cherished holiday. The history of Easter is a fascinating blend of religious, cultural, and pagan traditions. At its core, Easter is a Christian holiday— celebrating the resurrection of their central religious figure from the dead, an event that holds great significance for Christians worldwide. However, the origins of Easter can be traced back to even earlier traditions, with some elements of the holiday borrowed from ancient pagan customs. The name Easter is believed to have originated from the Old English word, Istra, or Ustra, which is connected to the name of a pagan goddess, Istra. Istra was a goddess of spring and fertility in Anglo-Saxon and Germanic mythology, celebrated during the spring equinox. The connection to the spring equinox, with spring being a time of renewal and rebirth, likely influenced the adoption of Easter. As the name for the Christian holiday that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus. Now that we've set the stage, let's dive into our adventure. Walking through the sun dappled forest, a flash of movement catches our eye. A rabbit. But this isn't just any ordinary rabbit. It's wearing a waistcoat and carrying a pocket watch. Curiosity peaked. We follow the rabbit down a hole, tumbling into a world of wonder and whimsy. As we dust ourselves off, we meet our first peculiar character, a wise old owl named Ophelia, perched on a tree branch.
3: Hello, dear traveler. Welcome to the Enchanted Easterlands. I see you met our rabbit friend. I encourage you to continue on this mysterious path.
5: At the base of the tree is our first storyteller of the night, Charlie from Crime Lines.
6: It started on March fifteenth, 1957, when 30-year-old Lawrence Bader kissed his wife Mary Lou goodbye and left their Akron, Ohio home for a business trip to Cleveland. Larry wrapped up his business around 4 p.m. and set out to Lake Erie to sneak in a little fishing time before he headed home. At 4.30, Larry shoved off in a rented boat. That evening, a storm hit the area and Larry Bader disappeared. When the boat was found abandoned the next day, all of the life jackets were accounted for. Without a life jacket, there was no way Larry could survive long on the cold waters of Lake Erie. A search of the lake and the surrounding area gave no clues and Larry Bader was, quote, presumed dead, leaving behind three young children and a pregnant wife. Three years after Larry disappeared, Mary Lou had him declared officially dead, and the family continued their lives in Akron, missing Larry, but moving forward. In 1965, five years after Larry was declared dead and eight years after he was last seen, a friend of his traveled to Chicago for a sporting goods convention, and there he saw a man who was the spitting image of Larry Bader almost the spitting image. This man had an eye patch, having lost an eye to cancer a couple of years before, and he had a mustache. But other than that, this was Larry Bader alive and well. At least the friend thought so. This friend quickly called Larry's family, who showed up in Chicago and were also convinced that this man was Larry. But he said he wasn't. He was Fritz Johnson of Omaha, Nebraska. The family did talk Fritz into going to the police station to be fingerprinted. Since Larry had been in the Navy, his prints were on record. Fritz agreed, seeing this as the fastest way to clear this whole thing up. The fingerprint card was sent off to the FBI to compare to the Navy records, and the prints matched. Fritz Johnson was, in fact, Lawrence Bader. Even after this, Fritz still denied his identity. He wasn't Larry, and he wasn't from Akron. He had arrived in Omaha five years before, four days after Larry had disappeared. But Fritz said that was just a coincidence. He had grown up in Boston, having been raised in an orphanage there. After arriving in Omaha, Fritz had quickly gained popularity thanks to his flamboyant personality. He bought an old hearse and had the back converted into a mobile lounge. He hosted champagne parties in his home and dated the most eligible young women in town. After getting his dream job at a radio station, Fritz threw himself into the promotional side of being a public personality. He dressed in colonial garb for a Washington Day event. He sat on top of a 50-foot flagpole for 15 days to raise money for charity. He had his friends hoist up two martinis a day to keep him sustained. Soon, Fritz was noticed by television station KETV, and he was hired on as the sports director and later married the local model Nancy Zimmer. Fritz Johnson certainly wasn't playing the part of a man who was trying to hide going on TV and rallying up publicity for himself. But after his true identity was revealed, Fritz went back to Omaha and hired a lawyer. He was in a pickle. He was both currently dead and a bigamist, two situations that put him in precarious legal standing. The lawyer recommended a full workup at the hospital. Fritz went impatient for 10 days, and the doctors could come to no conclusions. Through multiple interviews, they could not rattle Fritz's story. He showed no memory of his life as Larry Bader, yet remembered many details from Fritz's origin story without issue. But the doctors also could not find any physical reason why Fritz would have suffered from amnesia. Even if he was injured in the boat incident, it didn't explain having a whole new life backstory four days later when he showed up in Omaha. Some believed O'Leary was lying, having fled his considerable debts and the confines of his respectable life in Akron. His second wife, Nancy, may have been among the doubters because she soon sought an annulment. Fritz then lost his job at the TV station due to the bad press and had to go work as a bartender. After he paid child support to both of his wives, he had around $30 left each week and could only afford to live in a YMCA men's shelter. And then seven months after being legally restored to life, Lawrence Joseph Bader and or Fritz Johnson died of cancer on September 16th, 1966, at the age of 39. A memorial service was held for Fritz in Omaha after which his body was sent to Akron to be buried as Lawrence Joseph Bader in the family plot. The question of if this was a hoax or a true instance of a rare form of amnesia has never fully been answered. Some have offered a middle-of-the-road theory, marrying the two options. It was first suggested by Fritz's attorney, whose job was to keep him from getting charged criminally or civilly. In this version of events, Larry decided to ditch the family in Akron and live unencumbered in the wild metropolis of Omaha. But after he had that first surgery that removed his eye due to his cancer, something went wrong and his memory was affected. This surgery essentially erased his memories of being Larry Bader, but left Fritz Johnson intact. And Fritz began to believe his own heart lies.
5: The rabbit leads us to a field of flowers, swaying in the wind. As we meander through the field, the vibrant colors of the flowers create a mesmerizing tapestry, and the sweet fragrance of blossoms fills the air. Blossom dancing flower with a stunning smile twirls gracefully her petals a brilliant shade of pink the embodiment of joy and renewal
2: hello traveler don't be shy join me in my dance together we celebrate the rebirth of life in the enchanted Easterlands
5: we dance with Blossom our spirits lifted by the sight and scent of the blooming flowers. Joining us now in the field of flowers is Josh, from Rotten to
7: the Core. Hello and a Happy Easter, everyone. It's time to celebrate the resurrection of nature from the death of winter It is also officially springtime and time to shake off those winter blues. I asked my magic mirror to show me a fake death from history, but make it funny. And it did not disappoint. I bring to you the tale of a man who was born a poor fool, grew to be a rich fool, and died an old fool. His name was Timothy Dexter, and he faked his death, not for money, safety, or any of the usual reasonings. He did it solely for the attention and to make sure his wife would be sad enough. Now, most men will only receive flowers at their funeral. Timothy didn't want to wait, but this was long before Miley told us that we could buy them ourselves. Timothy was born to poor colonial farmers in 1748 in what is now Massachusetts. He only had a few years of schooling before dropping out at the age of eight. After several years working on his parents' farm, he left for Boston to apprentice for a tanner. He is known as a lucky fool, and when he was 21, Timothy met an older widow who happened to be loaded. He was soon living with her on her lavish estate in Boston. While he could have just enjoyed the lifestyle of having a sugar mama, Timothy wanted to make a name for himself as well as his own fortune. So being the somewhat pushy guy that he was, he began to seek business advice from his neighbors, like John Hancock. His problem would be that his neighbors absolutely despised him. Hmm... New money, how droll. Not only was he from out of their social circles, but he was uneducated and eccentric beyond all get-out. In an attempt to bankrupt him and rid themselves of his presence, they gave him a lot of bad advice, and he didn't hesitate to listen to every word. He had no knowledge of their business dealings and foolishly trusted them. Again, his luck would show its hand because out of all the bad advice they gave him, it miraculously kept working out in his favor. One thing they convinced him to do was to send a shipment of bed-warming pans to the Caribbean. Sheet warmers to a tropical climate. Well, he listened and lucked out. There was a desperate need for ladles and pots for the booming sugarcane business on the islands. It gets worse. Or better, I should say. They also convinced him to trap and ship all the stray cats he could and send them as well. Just imagine a cargo ship full of nothing but stray cats. He again listened and, long and behold, guess who was in desperate need of a solution to their rat infestation? You guessed it, the Caribbean. He sold out of cats and the pans, all at a high price. Timothy made the largest portion of his wealth after the end of the American Revolution. His neighbors had convinced him to buy the newly printed continental currency, which was a new form of money used to help fund the war. They weren't backed by any kind of asset like precious metals. They ended up losing value quickly, and that is right when Timothy poured all of his and his wife's money into buying them for a portion of a penny each. And yet again, as luck would have it, everything worked out in his favor. At the end of the war, Congress had agreed to buy them back at one penny on the dollar. It was bad for everyone except Timothy. He had so many, in fact, that it actually ended up making him a millionaire. Why isn't his life a movie yet? It sounds like a high school drama where the rich girls are mean to the not so smart new girl. All her ideas backfire, and then it's revealed that the new girl was actually a genius the whole time. The whole time. His neighbors were livid, and his increase in wealth only fueled his eccentricity. He went and bought a mansion and decorated the yard with huge stone bases topped with 40 life-size wooden statues. Next to his own was one of Thomas Jefferson that had the Constitution of Independence engraved on it. Aw, bless his heart. By this time, the American Revolution was over and it caused an end to people having titles such as Lord and Ladies. He still declared that he should be considered as a Lord from now on and began going by Lord Dexter. Eventually, Lord Dexter, as I said, grew to be an old fool. And out of what I can only imagine as boredom, he decided to fake his own death to see how many people would show up and how hard they would mourn him. He had a mausoleum built for it and told his family to play along. Over 30,000 people showed up to the funeral, but during, he noticed that his wife wasn't crying hard enough. She was even seen laughing and having just a gay old time. So when she was alone in a corner, he got up and began beating her loud enough that Everyone soon became aware. I wonder how everyone reacted to him just suddenly coming up out of his coffin. I would have taken off running. For the rest of the funeral, in fact, he acted as if it was just a big joke and a surprise party. Oh, good. You're back. I'm not sure why people stayed after that. I know there wasn't a lot to do then, but I don't deal with buffoonery. Before his actual death in 1806, Lord Dexter managed to self publish several books that had so many errors that he added 11 pages of punctuation marks for them, too, and I quote, They may peeper and salt it as they please. I will end with a poem that he had written about himself. Lord Dexter is a man of fame, most celebrated is his name. More precious far than gold that's pure. Lord Dexter, shine forevermore. (laughs) Well, Mirror, I asked for funny, and you did not disappoint. I laughed, I cried, and I felt better about all my own decisions. I hoped you all enjoyed learning about the lucky fool that was the false Lord, Timothy Dexter. Have a happy Easter, Shane. And everyone else, enjoy your candy. Remember, rabbits are a 10-year commitment. And it's a lot harder to catch a chicken than you might think. Trust me.
5: As we continue our journey, we stumble upon a quaint village where the houses are made of chocolate eggs and candy. Here we encounter our third character, Chocolina, a sweet and bubbly chocolatier.
2: Greetings, Traveler. Feel free to sample my Easter treats. They are crafted with love,
6: and each bite contains a touch of enchantment.
5: We savor Chocolina's delicate confections, the rich, velvety chocolate chocolate melting in our mouths, and we feel a warmth spread through our body. Suddenly, Peter appears, from Frightful, to join in on the chocolate goodness, and to share our next story.
4: Tonight, I'll be taking you back to the 19th century for a case of ghosts and murder, When nothing is as it seems This is the case of the fake Yet still deadly ghost Of Hammersmith Toward the end of November 1803 Something frightening was being reported In Hammersmith Which at the time was a small village On the outskirts of London Locals were claiming to have seen A ghostly spectre drifting Through the dark streets at night Rumour was that this was the ghost of a villager who had committed suicide the year before by slitting his own throat. One pregnant woman claimed she'd been crossing the churchyard when she saw this spirit rise up from the tombstone. It grabbed her as she ran away. People were terrified, and during those wintry months of 1803, you had to be brave or mad to walk the streets of Hammersmith at night. Until a group of young men gathered rifles and pistols to take down this supernatural being... And so on the 3rd of January, 1804, a 29-year-old excise officer joined the spooky hunt. His name was Francis Smith, and on that fateful night, he was armed with a fowling piece, a shotgun designed for shooting wild birds. He headed out into the streets hunting for the spirit and found himself in a part of Hammersmith called Black Lion Lane near the River Thames. But at the exact same time, a 22-year-old man called Thomas Millwood was leaving his parents' house. He was a bricklayer, and was heading out to pick up his wife from a late job. He didn't want her walking these haunted streets alone. And Thomas's outfit for work was a white shirt, a white flannel waistcoat, a white apron, and freshly washed white linen trousers. Perhaps you can see where this is going. I read the court transcripts which state that it had been an exceptionally dark night, and the lane where the encounter took place was narrow and ran between two high hedges. I also checked the phases of the moon for that evening. On January the 4th, 1804, the moon was in its last quarter, not full, but big enough to cast an eerie glow across the city and over the white clothes of Thomas. The two men stumbled upon one another at the junction where Black Lion Lane meets Beaver Lane, and poor old Thomas simply turned the corner and saw a random man holding a gun in the darkness. But Francis saw the white, ghostly figure that had terrorized London, and shocked at the sight of this specter, Francis started to shout demand saying "Damn you! Who are you? What are you? Damn you! I'll shoot you." And this is where Thomas Millwood made a fatal choice. He began to walk closer to Francis. Maybe he hadn't realized the danger he was in or hadn't even seen the gun in the darkness. But he knew about the weapon soon enough when a second later Francis aimed the barrel, the spirit, and pulled the trigger. The street boomed. as shot scattered into a deadly pattern around Thomas. And the man, dressed all in white, who just wanted to walk his wife home, fell to the floor, dead. Now, once he was shot, Francis Smith was shaken, yes, but he was excited. He had killed the ghost of Hammersmith. And at 10.30pm, he sprang off to tell people of his success. He gathered some men to come to see this spirit he had destroyed... They all raced back and saw the reality of the situation Lying in the street, his face staring upward at the moon Was the very real corpse of a human being, Thomas Millwood He'd been shot in the lower part of the jaw on the left side And the impact had broken that jaw and penetrated the vertebra of his neck Injuring his spinal marrow It was, as court records would state later, a mortal wound the gravity of the situation started to sink in for Francis Smith as the men called for the high constable to come and advise, and Francis just paced back and forth, agitated, saying,
5: I didn't know. I didn't know it was a person. I didn't, I didn't
4: know. The constable arrived and immediately told Francis Smith to go home and wait, which he did. Then the men lifted the shattered corpse of Thomas Millwood and carried him to the nearby Black Lion Inn and set his corpse down, probably on a table or perhaps the floor, Thomas would have spent many a night here drinking with his parents and wife, but now he lay dead. Yet this was no ordinary murder, because there was no mystery. Francis Smith had done this. But was he actually guilty of murder? An inquest was carried out right there in the inn, and it came to the only conclusion they felt was possible, that Francis Smith had indeed willfully murdered Thomas Millwood in the street. Ghost or no ghost, The coroner announced that Francis would stand trial at the Old Bailey for murder. The trial began, and the witnesses were called, testifying to what they saw that night, but also of the ghost stories leading up to it. The court records confirmed that there were actually several ghost hunting parties out that very night. One man who attended the corpse, a night watchman, admitted that he had seen the ghost himself on the Thursday before. Another local told the court that this ghost had attacked him in the churchyard, leaping up from behind a tombstone and grabbing him by the throat. And it was even said in that courtroom that on account of his white clothes, Thomas Millwood had already been mistaken for the Hammersmith ghost on two previous occasions, so much so that his family had advised him to wear a long coat whenever he went out at night. Anne Millwood also took the stand. She was the sister of Thomas, and she had heard the entire exchange between Thomas and Francis. She said this,
6: I ran out of the door and when I got halfway from my father's house to my brother's I saw my brother laying dead at the gate. I took hold of his right hand and said speak to me but he could not and his head was laying towards me as I went up to him.
4: The jury retired for about three quarters of an hour and returned with a verdict of manslaughter but the Lord Chief Baron told them that this option was simply not available to them they would have to find the prisoner either guilty or not guilty of murder because in a case where someone has deliberately shot another there was no in-between and so the jury discussed it again and came back with a devastating verdict Francis Smith was guilty of murder and he was sentenced to hang and his body would be given to the medical college to be dissected afterwards he left the courtroom with little hope But there was a great amount of public sympathy for him, and after an agonizing few weeks, Francis heard the news he had prayed for. Despite the deliberate shooting, those ghostly elements meant that this was not a cold-blooded murder after all. And he was granted a stay of execution and was offered a pardon, if and only if he served a year, hard labor, in prison. And what of the ghost of Hammersmith who started all this? Well, the publicity surrounding the shooting and court case caused a local shoemaker to come forward, His name was John Graham, and he admitted to dressing as a ghost to scare villagers. He did this to take revenge on his apprentices because they had told Graham's children some scary ghost stories. It seemed that the Hammersmith ghost was no more. Until 1824, when reports began that the ghost had returned to Hammersmith, only this time it could breathe fire. The ghost was sighted up until the 1830s, until a new supernatural figure took its place. Spring-Heeled Jack Yet those who say the Hammersmith ghost never existed Might have some caution Because after Thomas Millwood was shot There have been reports of his spirit Haunting the Black Lion Inn Where his corpse lay on that night The landlord of the inn in 2004 Told the BBC that there had been A strange voice speaking to people in the pub And yet no one was there to speak it Perhaps the clearly fake ghost of Hammersmith Ended up creating a very real ghost who still wanders those streets after all these years, searching for a wife he will never find.
5: We leave the village with a spring in our step and soon arrive at a serene lake shimmering with the golden light of the setting sun. Here we meet our fourth character, Ripple, a wise and gentle water spirit.
6: Welcome,
2: traveler. My lake is a place of reflection, a respite for those who seek inner peace. Allow yourself a moment to be still, and let the water's tranquility wash over you.
5: We pause at the lake's edge, the water's calming embrace, soothing our soul. Suddenly appearing on a small boat on the lake is Bill and Kristen from Mind Over Murder.
0: On this episode of Mind Over Murder, we're discussing Wally Thrasher, the notorious drug smuggler from Virginia's New River Valley. During the 1970s and 1980s, Thrasher transported marijuana and cocaine into the United States from South America, working under some of the biggest drug kingpins in South Florida. According to Ron Peterson, author of Chasing the Squirrel, by 1974, Thrasher was one of the highest paid drug smuggling pilots in the business, earning up to $96,000 per plane load of weed.
3: Hailing from Pulaski, Virginia, Thrasher was a criminally handsome, charming, and gifted athlete. He was known as the Squirrel for being wily and elusive. He served in the U.S. Navy for three years before being honorably discharged. He attended Virginia Tech for less than a year before deciding to forge his own path without further education.
0: After marriage, a child, a divorce, and a stint owning a hippie clothing store called the Hydraulic Buffalo, Thrasher finally found his niche when he took flying lessons in Roanoke, Virginia. He earned both his private and commercial pilot certificates and moved to Florida to pursue his new career, eventually saving up enough to buy his own airplane, a twin-engine Beach 18. In
3: 1972, Wally Thrasher was introduced to Ken Bernstein, who hired Thrasher to run loads of weed from Mexico or the Caribbean to Fort Lauderdale. Waiting vans would take the drugs north on Interstate 95.
0: Thrasher was wildly successful and was making money hand over fist, though his career wasn't without its problems, including a two-year stint in a Mexican prison. He worked for various kingpins throughout Florida until 1977 when he married his third wife, Olga Wright.
3: After his marriage, he tried very hard to get out of the business in order to go legit. He attended real estate classes and tried a series of business adventures, all of which failed. Eventually, he got back into the smuggling business to earn money for his growing family. By the end of 1979, Wally Thrasher was running drugs for 46 year old kingpin Frank Brady, who was well on his way to building the largest drug smuggling operation on the East Coast.
0: Thrasher again wanted out of the smuggling game for the safety of his family. He tried once more for a career out of the drug smuggling biz. He and Olga opened up a furniture store called Captain's Catch Furniture. First a legitimate business, and then a shell corporation for laundering his smuggling profits. Back into the games Thrasher went.
3: This time he had a few close calls, including ending up in jail in the Bahamas. Olga had to buy his way out of the Bahamian prison to the tune of 50,000. In 1982, Olga and Thrasher decided moving to their home in Virginia full-time was the best option for their family. Thrasher suggested that he fly the drugs into Virginia instead. It was a much shorter road trip between Virginia and New York.
0: By the spring of 1983, Wally was a bona fide drug smuggling ringleader heading up operations in Virginia. They started small, flying in 1,000 to 1,500 pounds of weed into the NRV airport a few times a month.
3: Thrasher was also mentoring a co-pilot named Nelson King who made the trips back and forth to Belize with him for drugs. While King wasn't the most skilled pilot out there, he was calm and steady, and he made a good backup for Thrasher when he needed a quick catnap on a long flight.
0: In October of 1984, Thrasher was set to make a run to Belize to pick up a load of pot. A death in the family forced him to curtail his plan, so he allowed Nelson King to make the run, along with smuggling associate and close friend Mark Bailey as co-pilot. At this point, King had been co-pilot with Thrasher on four flights. He extensively planned every aspect of the trip with the two men, laying out that they would make the run over two days, flying from Virginia to Florida for a refueling stop, then Florida to Belize, where they would pay $250,000 for the pot and fly it back to Virginia.
3: The first part of the flight went smoothly. The second part did not. King did not hand over the $250,000 to Thrasher's contacts in Belize. King said Thrasher had instructed him that the load was to be fronted, that is, paid for in full later. Thrasher had such a stellar reputation with his Belize contact that they agreed and allowed the two men to take off with the 1,200 pounds of Belize Breeze pot and the $250,000.
0: The trip back to Virginia ended in disaster. King attempted to avoid fog over Fancy Gap Mountain in Virginia by flying under the weather. A dangerous practice, rather than attempting to climb over it as Thrasher had instructed. King, not good at reading instrument panels, tried to navigate visually, but found himself unable to do it because of the fog. He crashed the plane into the side of Fancy Gap Mountain, going 175 miles an hour.
3: The plane broke into four pieces. Mark Bailey was burned to literal ashes in the ensuing inferno. Nelson King miraculously survived.
0: Limping away from the crash site, King called Thrasher to come to his rescue. Thrasher came to the panicky realization that the plane full of pot would shortly be traced to him. As with the injured pilot, he burned all paperwork that linked him to the aircraft, the logbooks, the bill of sale for the plane, and the maintenance records. He loaded King into his truck and drove 13 hours to a hospital in Florida. They decided on the story that King had been injured in a motorcycle accident.
3: As expected, Thrasher's plane was traced back to him within 48 hours of the crash, as was the identity of Mark Bailey via dental records. Hoping to recoup his losses for the load of pot and unaware that King had stolen $250,000, Thrasher made a call to Belize to ask if he could fly down for another load. When he learned of King's double cross, he went in search for his associate, but no dice. King was now in the wind.
0: Thrasher decided to go back to Virginia to sell a significant stash of pot that he had stored in a shed at Claytor Lake in order to pay off the debt that he owed his contacts in Belize. He called a smuggling associate, Joe Selby, and offered him the pot, which was worth about $300,000. Selby agreed to buy it, but only for $150,000. Between a rock and a hard place and needing to pay back his debt, Thrasher agreed.
3: But the double crossing wasn't done. Thrasher and Selby stopped at a New Jersey motel overnight on their way to New York to sell the load of pot. While Thrasher slept, Selby absconded with the product and the van. Thrasher now owed $250,000 to a Belizean kingpin. He was being hunted by authorities, he had lost his favorite plane, and was now out another $300,000 worth of pot.
0: Unable to do anything else, Thrasher flew to Belize to meet with his contact and convinced him to front hell one more load of pot to sell in order to pay back his debts.
3: Thrasher did not return home as planned on November 5th. Finally, on November 8th, one of his Florida associates, Dicky Sinat, called Olga and reported bad news. Wally had been in a plane crash in Jamaica. The fire had burned so hot that Wally had been incinerated. There was nothing left of him but his wedding ring, which Dicky brought back to Olga unscathed.
0: Olga, heartbroken and bereft, did the only thing she could do, arranged a funeral for her husband. But even at the funeral, groups of Wally's friends whispered that they didn't think Wally was dead. He was pulling an audacious stunt to avoid legal trouble over the plane crash and the drug smuggling. They firmly believed the squirrel was still alive. The federal government didn't buy that Wallace Thrasher had died in the plane crash. They set up a federal grand jury to look into Thrasher's business dealings. When she was subpoenaed to appear in front of a federal grand jury to discuss her husband's business dealings, she pled the fifth and was held in contempt of court. The grand jury found that Wallace Samuel Thrasher was guilty of a dozen instances of smuggling drugs in addition to tax evasion.
3: Olga Thrasher found herself in the hot seat, being questioned about her husband's business transactions. Eventually, in an effort to save herself and her family, she became a federal informant.
0: All the while, Olga continued wondering what happened to her husband. Was he still alive? The FBI, the DEA, Customs, and the U.S. Marshals were all actively looking for Thrasher. FBI, DEA, and VSP agents who worked on this case all have different theories. Some believe he died in a crash in Belize. Others believe he faked his own death to go into hiding, but has died since then. Still, others believe he's gone off the grid and is alive today.
3: The U.S. Marshals actively hunted for Wally Thrasher, following up on tips and sightings until 2015 when the U.S. attorney filed a motion in Roanoke to dismiss the open warrant for Thrasher's arrest. He stated that available evidence showed Thrasher to be deceased and there was no further reason to keep the warrant open.
0: Wally Thrasher would be 83 years old today. Is he still somewhere out there living his best life? Or did he die in a fiery plane crash in 1984? Much like the notorious case of skyjacker D.B. Cooper, we will never really know the answer.
3: For more information on the fascinating case of Wally Thrasher, pick up Chasing the Squirrel by Ron Peterson, available on Amazon or wherever books are sold.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Mind Over Murder. We'll see you next time.
5: With renewed purpose, we set off on the next leg of our journey, traversing a whimsical forest of towering candy canes and marshmallow mushrooms. Our path is illuminated by the soft, magical glow of fairy lights. In the heart of this sugar-coated wonderland, we encounter our fifth character, Sir Sticky, a dashing, chivalrous candy cane knight.
0: Hail Traveller! Be on your guard, for this forest is full of surprises. Stay true to your path, and you'll reach the heart of the enchanted Easterlands.
5: With a firm grasp of our newfound courage, we thank Sir Sticky and press onward. Just as Sir Sticky dashes out of sight, Robin appears from The Trail Went Cold. It's good to see a familiar face, and he has our next story.
1: So one of the most controversial and divisive topics in the world today is the death penalty. Obviously, one of the biggest arguments against the death penalty is that there's always a risk of an innocent person being executed for a crime they did not commit. But if you want a more extreme version of this scenario... What if an innocent person was sentenced to death for murdering someone who turned out to be alive? Or even worse, what if the so-called victim's family hated the defendant's family so much that they intentionally faked the victim's death in order to frame the defendant and hope to see him executed for a murder that never happened? Well, believe it or not, this exact scenario actually occurred. Yes, there have been documented cases of innocent people being executed for supposedly murdering a victim who turned out to be alive, but these incidents mostly occurred over a century or two ago. However, this particular case took place during the 1980s in Uganda. At the start of the decade, 27-year-old Edward Edmari Mapagi lived in Uganda's capital city of Kampala and had a wife and six children. He ran a successful taxi business, but after an incident in which his taxi was stolen at gunpoint, Edward decided to relocate his family to the village of Kayambala, where he had grown up. They moved in with Edward's father, and he quickly established himself as one of the village's most well-respected citizens. But on June 12, 1981, everyone was taken by complete surprise when Edward and his cousin, Fred Masembe were arrested and charged with murder. The alleged victim was George William Wandiaka, who went by his middle name and was one of Edward's neighbors in Kayambala. Edward and Fred were both accused of robbing William and stabbing him to death. One year after their arrest, the two men were taken to trial for William's murder, where they were both found guilty and sentenced to death. The two defendants continued to maintain their innocence and seemed to have one fairly convincing piece of evidence in their favor. Namely, the fact that Edward was certain he had seen William standing in the courtroom during the trial. Maybe it's just me, but I do feel that if someone is being tried for murder, the victim not actually being dead should probably be enough to generate reasonable doubt. Regardless, I'm sure the courts just thought that Edward was hallucinating or making up any ridiculous story he could to save himself, as both he and Fred were sent to death row at Lazira Maximum Security Prison in order to await execution. Now, when someone is sentenced to death in the United States, it will usually be many years before their execution goes through, as they are entitled to file numerous appeals. And once they run out of legal options, an execution date is officially set for them, so the defendant will at least know when they are scheduled to die. However, that's not how the system worked in Uganda back in the 1980s, as condemned prisoners were taken to death row, but not given any information about when they were scheduled to die. They would only find out when someone suddenly showed up and dragged them out of their cell, informing them that they were going to be executed in three days via hanging. So you can imagine the psychological torture of being on death row for years, never knowing if this was the week you were going to die. Edward would later say that he witnessed a total of 52 inmates get taken from their cells and executed in this fashion, and they would often do this with batches of 10 or 11 prisoners at a time. This experience was pure hell for Edward and Fred, and while Fred's execution never went through, he wound up developing malaria and stomach complications. Since Fred was a condemned prisoner who was going to die anyway, prison authorities did not feel the need to provide him with proper medical treatment, so he passed away in 1985. To make things even more tragic, Edward's wife also died while he was incarcerated. Well, as time went on, It appeared that Edward's account about having seen William in the courtroom might have actually been true, as numerous sightings started pouring in from witnesses who were certain they had seen William at various locations throughout Uganda. In 1989, eight years after William's murder supposedly took place, the authorities finally uncovered conclusive evidence that he was alive and living in the village of Mabiko, as he sometimes took trips back to Kayambala in order to visit his family. So how in the world could something like this have happened? Well, since this story took place in Uganda, there are not exactly an abundance of English-language sources available out there, so certain details are very vague. But the gist of it seems to be that William Wandiaka's parents had a major grudge against Edward Mapagi's father. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find out exactly what this grudge was, only that it was based around a land dispute, but it was apparently serious enough that William's family believed that going to the trouble of faking his death in order to frame Edward for his non-existent murder was the most appropriate way to handle it. You might be wondering how they pulled something like this off, but apparently, they bribed witnesses to say that they had seen Edward and Fred kill William and dispose of his body. And their frame-up job was given additional credibility when they bribed a pathologist to falsely testify that he had done a post-mortem on William's body. I'm not sure why the defense team never asked to see the body or any other corroborating evidence to prove that a crime took place, but it's good to know that the courts were totally fine with sentencing two innocent men to death on the basis of one witness who testified, Dude, take my word for it, it was totally a murder. Unfortunately, as is often the case in many wrongful conviction stories, the higher powers did not want to admit that they had made a colossal mistake. So, even after the Attorney General of Uganda was given conclusive evidence that no murder ever took place and the so called victim was still alive, Edward continued to languish on death row for another 11 years, as it's apparently very difficult to overturn a conviction in that country. It was not until July of 2000 when Edward finally received a full pardon from the President of Uganda and was released from prison, but by that point, he had spent 19 years behind bars for a crime that never happened. Not surprisingly, Edward has become a major activist for abolishing the death penalty, and his story is considered to be one of the worst miscarriages of justice the world has ever seen. And if you're wondering what happened to William Wandiaka, he actually wound up dying of natural causes in 2002, two years after Edward was released, and hopefully, William's family didn't try to frame anyone again. Edward never got the opportunity to confront William, and that's probably the best outcome for everyone involved, since I think there's a good chance that Edward would have wound up going back to death row for a real murder.
5: As we make our way through the enchanted forest, we come across a beautiful garden, where the grass is a lush emerald green and the trees are adorned with shimmering silver leaves it is here that we meet our sixth character melodia a songbird with a voice so enchanting it could heal the heart of the most troubled soul
2: welcome traveler my songs are an expression of love and harmony Listen, and let the melody infuse your spirit with
0: joy.
5: We pause to appreciate Melodia's tunes, and our hearts are filled with a sense of contentment and unity. Appearing now at the call of Melodia's tune is Kristen from The Hidden Staircase with our next story.
2: It's officially springtime, and along with it comes Easter and all of the flowers popping open. You may even feel the urge to run through a field of them and enjoy being high on life. The man in my story today was often high on more than life and wrote one of the most popular books ever because of it. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, which happens to be my personal favorite. This was all when LSD was still legal, but when he was busted for marijuana, he decided to fake his death and escape to Mexico. The author's name is Ken Kesey, and his success began when he participated in a CIA-ran psychoactive drug test, during which he was exposed to drugs like LSD and cocaine. The trials were only temporary, but he became hungry to further his distortions of reality. Ken soon became engulfed in a world of LSD, pills, THC, mushrooms, and peyote, later even attributing the success of his famous book to his participation in the drug test and further personal tests afterward. If you've read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. (laughs) During his escapades, Ken became friends with like-minded people who dubbed themselves the Merry Pranksters. Together, they began to study the effects of the mind-altering medication by traveling in a roadshow on an altered school bus known as the Further. They used the Further to express themselves and spread the word about a lifestyle based on freedom of self and creating art out of daily life. Riders in the trippy bus shared in a plethora of mind-altering substances while road noise was piped in through the speakers from the outside, and their conversations were blasted through a speaker on the outside. As Ken said, their motto was freedom of body and mind, no matter what the law states. they played a massive part in the blooming of hippie culture and the success of the Grateful Dead, who were essentially the house band of the pranksters. As you can imagine, authorities didn't usually react kindly to a rainbow bus full of tripping people. Sadly for Ken, when he was found with marijuana in his possession, he was arrested two separate times in an effort to not only crack down on marijuana users, but also the widespread influence Kesey seemed to have. As a result, an arrest warrant was issued for Ken in 1966, not for the further or for LSD, but just over marijuana possession. That began a several month long ploy to evade arrest and prosecution. And it started with the author faking his death. To do so, Ken drove the further to a secluded cliffside along the coast of California and left a suicide note that read, Ocean, ocean, I'll beat you in the end. I'll break you this time. I'll go through with my heels at your hungry ribs. Then, with the help of his pranksters, Ken lay in the trunk of a getaway car and was driven to Mexico. evaded the FBI and the Federals in Mexico for eight months. He was traveling to several towns, including Puerto Vallarta, and a place known as Marijuana City. His time on the lam was filled with sunshine and a plethora of THC. Eventually, Ken grew tired of his life in Mexico, and with the continued help of the pranksters, he returned to California. Then one day, as he was driving, a couple of police officers recognized him and quickly pulled him over. Ken jumped from his truck and once again attempted to flee arrest. The officers chased him down a steep embankment over a fence and eventually apprehended him after a five-block pursuit. Ken Kesey was finally caught and sentenced to five months in an experimental Redwoods work camp, clearing brush. After serving time, Ken moved to Pleasant Hill, Oregon and began a more secluded life with his family. However, he still managed to write and eventually made a second trippy bus in the 90s to accompany his memoir based on his time on the first bus. His actual death occurred on October 21st, 2001 after complications from liver surgery. Ken lives on today through his writings and is known as one of the most influential authors in history. Unfortunately, through his efforts to avoid arrest, he fled longer than his actual punishment. It seemed to be enough to set him on the straight and narrow or at least be a lot less public about his mind-altering lifestyle.
5: Our journey then leads us to a grand, glistening palace made of crystal, where we meet our seventh character, King Arulus, a wise and benevolent ruler whose kindness knows no bounds.
0: Greetings, traveler. My palace is a symbol of hope and light, shining
4: bright even in the darkest times.
0: May your journey be filled with courage and resilience.
5: King Arulis allows us to rest tonight within his beautiful palace. Before we end this night, do you mind if I share a story myself? I mentioned at the beginning that I am a crime podcaster, but I also am a history podcaster, and I'd like to share a quick story to end the night for my show, Hometown History.
6: Hello! Hello
5: This is the sound of a resurrection. This is actual audio from the funeral of an Irish man named Shay Bradley in Dublin, Ireland.
6: Is that that here.
0: I
4: can Let me know. Hello! Hello!
5: And yes, it's coming from inside the coffin, from the bottom of a six foot hole. The family is surrounding the graveside, five to ten people deep. The initial shock is giving way to laughter that grows as more people realize what's happening.
6: I'm in the
4: box. No, hello, hello.
5: Shortly before his death, Bradley had recorded this message to be played from his casket for one last laugh with his loved ones. But sometimes it's not so funny because sometimes it's real. This is actual audio from another graveside. And notice, no one is laughing.
4: In July of
1: 2016...
5: Pregnant teenager, Nisi Perez, collapsed in the middle of the night on her way to the bathroom. The sound of gunfight in a nearby street triggered a stress reaction, either a panic attack or what is known as a cataphylactic episode, in which the victim's body shuts down in response to trauma, a kind of waking coma. Within an hour... Nacy was pronounced dead and buried on the following day in an above-ground vault in the town of La Entrada, Honduras. The day after the burial, muffled screams were heard in the area of the tomb. Her mother would later say, As I put my hand on her grave, I could hear noises inside. I heard banging. Then I heard her voice. She was screaming for help. What you hear is a circle of people attempting to perform CPR. In the next video, Lacey does not look dead. But by the time she's rushed to the hospital, she's gone. Oxygen-deprived may have been the final cause of death. According to her mother, even after a day in the tomb, the color of her body was normal. Her corpse didn't smell. She just looked like she was in a deep sleep. There was no rigor mortis. Her body was still flexible. It was impossible that she had been dead for so many hours. Tragically, There are countless other examples from history of this type of halfway resurrection. In 2011, in Kazan, Russia, a woman named Makomik Zayanev sat up in her casket in the middle of her own funeral. The shock of that experience led to a second heart attack, which was unfortunately fatal. History is full of stories like this. And there are times, of course, where people do it on purpose. Sometimes they fake their death, as in many of these other stories. Sometimes it's a performance. Harry Houdini had himself buried alive to prove that he could escape even the grave. As it turned out, he could not escape the grave, and he had to be rescued when he nearly died for real. Years later, in Fresno, California, a Houdini admirer named Joe Burris would attempt the same feat with a twist. He would have 6,000 pounds of wet concrete poured on top of his casket. Amazing Joe was a struggling magician, looking for his big break, so he invited a camera crew to cover his escape. More than 150 people were in attendance. This footage would later be used by television programs, like A Current Affair, to tell Joe's story.
0: And then buried alive under seven tons of dirt and cement. But something goes terribly wrong. Exclusive, the greatest show of Amazing Joe. All of Joe's family was there to witness his greatest moment, and they were videotaping it so they could cherish it forever. But as our Mike Watkins tells us, something happened that turned this video into a horror movie.
5: In the video, you can see Joe Wentz as a uniformed police officer cuffs his hands in front of him. And it's clearly not an act. The cuffs are too tight, but it wouldn't have mattered anyway.
3: Through the chains, through the shackles, through the handcuffs... We're on my way through three and a half feet. Up there. We get through
7: all this before the in. A
5: reporter covering the events asks Joe if he understands the full implications of what he's about to attempt here. It's clear that he does not. He tries to play off the awkward moment with a joke, but it's obvious that he's in over his head.
1: You realize that cement
3: starts to harden first at at the lower elevation, so it's going to be hard. (laughs) You mean it it hardens at the lower part? I thought it started at the top. No, it hardens at the top. No, 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 no. In fact, I shouldn't even kid. This is very serious. This is no
5: magic trick like you've been seeing this night. Your heart sinks as you watch them pour concrete, 6,000 pounds of it, on top of Joe, in his frail plastic coffin at the bottom of a seven-foot hole. For context, 6,000 pounds is roughly the same weight as the largest SUVs, or two Volkswagen Beetles. Almost immediately after being filled to the top, the concrete drops a foot and a half. The plastic coffin has collapsed. By the time rescuers reached him, by digging a second hole beside the first, Joe has passed away.
1: He told me just a few days before that something Houdini said that was <clears throat> it will either be fate or my foolishness that kills me, and it was Houdini's foolishness and and Joe's too. Oh, my God!
5: As easy as it is to criticize someone like Joe, we all do foolish things. If we're lucky, we survive them. And this may seem like an unusual takeaway from stories like these, but they really just make me glad to be alive. Life is precious, and we can waste a lot of time and energy trying to impress people or pulling stupid stunts that are really just attempts to feel alive. What I'm reminded of when I hear stories like this is that we're already alive. We already have a lot to be grateful for. And the older I get, the more I look at every morning as a little resurrection. I think of all the people who didn't wake up on that day or any other day who didn't come back from the darkness, and I feel grateful that I did. So I make a commitment just to be completely present, in the present, and ironically, that's one of the things that history helps us do. Happy Easter, everyone. Hello again, friend. Thank you for joining me tonight in what was part one in this two part special collaboration Easter episode. I'm Shane Waters, the organizer and creator of these collaborations, and I truly hope that you enjoy them. If you do, consider leaving a review for this podcast wherever you're listening. If this isn't your cup of tea, well, then my name is George. And forget all about the whole review thing, won't you? Remember, all podcasts that you heard are listed in the show notes in order of appearance, along with a link on where to find them. I'll see you soon.